can be seated. <clears throat> All right, the last couple of lines in that song are so fitting as we go into the preaching of God's word. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Let's ask the Lord to build the church this morning. Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 13. In our second sermon in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we saw how Paul began his letter by thanking, well, not really by thanking the Thessalonians, but by telling God how thankful he was for the Thessalonians. And for us, it seems like that was such a long time ago. We've moved very slowly through this letter. And so you might think that Paul has moved on from this theme of thankfulness when in fact he hasn't. If you look at verse 13, the verse that we're going to be spending time in this morning, Paul uses that same phraseology. He says, we thank God constantly for this. But he he adds the word also there. We also thank God. So Paul is saying, listen, we're thankful for everything that we've said so far, and we're thankful for what I'm about to say. And the thing that Paul is about to say is what we're going to study together this morning. So uh, I've got four points for you this morning. Uh, for the sermon, note takers, here you go. Point number one, hearing God's word. Point number two, receiving God's word. Point number three, the fruit of God's word. And then point number four, application. All the application is going to be backloaded. So hearing God's word, receiving God's word, the fruit of God's word, and application. Let me pray and then we'll dive in. Father, help my words uh, to be absent this morning. Help your wisdom, your logic, your truth, your son Jesus Christ to shine bright. Show us your glory in him. Amen. Point number one, hearing God's word. Would you say that God speaks to you? It's not uncommon for Christians to say things like, God told me so-and-so and such-and-such. In some churches, it's pretty prominent amongst the youth of the church, you know. God told this man that he was supposed to marry that woman, you know, that kind of thing. But if you were to press Christians who talk like this, and if you were to ask them exactly what they mean, exactly how God told them what he told them, what it would usually boil down to is some kind of strong impression or emotion or sense of intuition about a situation or a person or an event. If you press in on people who talk like this, they'll almost never say, well, yes, God actually audibly spoke these words to me. And while I understand what Christians mean when they say, God told me this or that, I think we can all agree that there's probably a better way to talk about our subjective experiences, our, our emotions, our intuitions, probably better than just saying God told me as if it stands on the authority of heaven. But let's just say for a moment that I'm more charismatic in my theology than I actually am. 
And let's just say I grant for the moment that God did speak to you personally about some matter in your life. I would then need to add and say, just to be clear, the most normal way that God speaks to people is through his word. It's through the Bible. So if you want to know what God has to say to you, you can just open up the Bible and you can start reading anywhere you please. That's really easy for me to say. It's 2020. I can choose from any number of different versions of the Bible, most of them fairly inexpensive. I can have the Bible delivered to my front door, next day delivery by Amazon if I so choose. If I want, I can get it bound up in a really nice calfskin leather Bible, which I never will because it's like $700. But if I wanted to, I could. It's really easy for me to say, if you want to hear from God, just open up your Bible and read. What if I lived in North Korea? What if I, oh, I don't know, lived in the city of Thessalonica 2,000 years ago? How might I have heard God's word then? I mean, the odds of me being literate would have been pretty slim. And the odds of me having my own personal copy of the Old Testament would have been zero. So how would I have heard God's word? Well, the answer is through the preaching of God's word. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, Right? So they heard the word from Paul and Silas and Timothy. Well, how did they hear it from them? They heard it through preaching. If you don't believe me, the book of Acts specifically tells us how this happened. In Acts chapter 17, let me read to you from verses 1 through 3. When Paul and his companions, that's Saul and, uh, excuse me, Silas and Timothy, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to the city of Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, that's three consecutive Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, as you listen to that account of Paul going into the synagogue and reasoning from the Scriptures, you may be thinking, Sean, that sounds a little bit more like teaching than preaching, right? I mean, The language of uh, he reasoned with them and he explained and he proved from the scriptures. That, That might sound a little bit more like classroom than pulpit. Well, not at all. In the very next verse, Paul says this, This Jesus I am proclaiming to you as Messiah. And that language of proclamation, that's the same language as preaching. It's synonymous. Right? It's, it's the war has ended. I'm a messenger from the battlefield. I'm running back to the city to announce, to proclaim the good news that we won the war. Paul's ministry among the Thessalonians involved a lot of things like personal fellowship over meals, the private ministry of the word, singing, other stuff that goes along with being a good pastor. But the primary way that God's word came to the church in Thessalonica was through the preaching of the gospel. And you should know that that's not unique to Paul and it's not unique to Paul's time in Thessalonica. I want to just take us, if we can, for a a brief trip. Uh, Cohen, if you can pull up the scriptures, you're already there, buddy. The scriptures on preaching. 
we're just going to walk through uh, some scriptures that show the prominence of preaching in taking the gospel out to the nations. Matthew 3.1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Mark chapter 2, verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he, this is Jesus, was preaching the word to them. Mark 1, 38 and 39. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. Why did Jesus come? To preach. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues. They were like, Jesus, stick around. There's more people to be healed, more good deeds to be done. Jesus says, I didn't come to do good deeds. I came to preach. Matthew 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, kingdom of heaven. Sean, we need to stop talking about repentance, you know? No, Jesus, the heart of his message was repent, and that's what he preached. Mark 3.14, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Matthew 11.1, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And every, do I have, what's next after that on your paper? Acts, yeah, okay, same here. Acts 5.42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So this is after the resurrection. What are the disciples doing? How do they understand the Great Commission? Are they supposed to go out and like plant community gardens are they supposed to like go and like open up like centers of like poverty alleviation? Well, maybe those things are good, but that's not the main thing that they understood themselves to be needing to do. They went out preaching. Acts 6.2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So even in the face of like ethnic controversies in the church and food isn't being distributed to the poor properly, they say, listen, you guys got to figure out a way to handle that because we need to keep preaching. Acts 8.4, now those who were scattered from the persecution went about preaching the word. And it just goes on and on and on like this. In total, the book of Acts makes 16 references to God working through the preaching of his word to draw the nations to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. At the beginning of his letter to the Romans, Paul tells the Christians there that he is, quote, eager to preach the gospel, end quote, to them. This is very significant because they're already Christians. So Paul doesn't want to just preach the gospel for the sake of evangelism. He also wants to preach the gospel to strengthen the church. And if you want to know Paul's rationale for preaching, he lays it out in Romans 10, which our sister Allison read for us this morning. Pay attention to Paul's logic here. Focus with me. Listen and pay attention. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who can call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, how can people be saved? People need to be saved. How can people be saved? Well, if they call on the name of the Lord. Okay, but what if they don't know the name of the Lord? That's a big problem. Paul goes on. And how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear 
without someone preaching. According to God, preaching is the primary means by which people can hear the name of the Lord, believe upon the name of the Lord, and then be saved by the Lord. And this is how the Thessalonians came to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. But preaching the word is only one half of the equation. You see, although Paul was faithful to preach, the Thessalonians, they had the responsibility to receive, which they did. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Let's just read it all in one pop real quick. Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Point number two, receiving the word of God. Notice the language that Paul uses here. He doesn't say that the Thessalonians received his preaching as if it were the word of God. And they could have. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee, expert in the law, really big deal. His opinions mattered. So much so that Jesus says, you Pharisees burden people with your opinions, right? The words of a Pharisee were so significant that when, when they spoke, people felt like a yoke was being put on them. So Paul doesn't say, oh, you received our preaching as if it were the word of God. No, he says, you received it as it really is. In other words, Paul says, listen, I came and I preached to you. And when I preached to you, God was speaking to you. And you received it. You believed that it really was God speaking to you and not just the mere words of a man. Now that leads us to a question. Why were the Thessalonians able to receive God's word? I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but I'll say it anyways. Not everyone is able to receive God's word. The word is preached. Some people receive it. Some people reject it. I think that there are two issues here behind why people either receive the word or don't. We'll look at them one at a time. The first one is the authenticity issue. The authenticity issue. Uh, some years back, there was a really big hubbub in certain circles about the discovery and subsequent publication of something called the Gospel of Judas. You guys ever heard of that? The Gospel of Judas? It was on the Discovery Channel, you know, the History Channel. First it was like the Alien Show and then the Gospel of Judas special. And it was a really big deal amongst those who make a whole career out of attacking the Gospel, right? Attacking the Bible, people like Bart Ehrman and the like. The Dan Browns, you know, the guy who wrote the Da Vinci Code. You know, they were the guys who were super excited about this, this, go this gospel. What was it going to say? What was it going to reveal about Jesus? What would it reveal about Judas? Maybe Judas didn't really betray Jesus. Maybe Jesus never died on the cross. Maybe Jesus never re resurrected. Maybe Jesus ended up marrying and he went off and lived a happy little life in Galilee. We don't know, but maybe this gospel of Judas will tell us. Well, as soon as it was published, those who took any time to carefully study this gospel for non-exploitative reasons, it didn't take them long to figure out that it was very obviously a scam, okay? That it was an imposter. Some guy, we don't know who, but some, some Gnostic author wrote it about 150 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Simon Gathercole uh, of Aberdeen University said that the gospel of Judas was the equivalent of the discovery of 
uh, Queen Victoria, and then when you go and you, uh, excuse me, the discovery of the diary of Queen Victoria, and then you go and you open her diary and you start reading and it talks about how much she loves the Lord of the Rings and all of her favorite CDs in her CD collection, okay? That's how bad it was. Now, what's my point? The point is, not everything that professes to be the Word of God is the Word of God. The world is full of supposed revelation. The Quran professes to be a, a divine revelation from God through the prophet Muhammad in order to correct the errors of Judaism and Christianity. The Book of Mormon is in the same vein, just in a weirder, different, later way. In Paul's own day, there were many preachers and teachers who were going around spreading lies about God in the name of Jesus, and Paul is very careful to warn about them. In our own day, there is no shortage of preaching that proclaims for itself divine revelation, even though it springs straight from the bowels of hell. So how could the Thessalonians know? How could they really know whether or not the word that they were receiving was authentically the word of God? Well, this is something we've talked about in Sunday school before. It would take a whole other sermon for me to unpack this. We would talk about things like the self-authenticating nature of Scripture and the, uh, the marks of canonicity and, and a bunch of other stuff like that. For now, let me just say, we already talked about this earlier. The proof was in the pudding, right? You know that it was the real Word of God by what it did in the life of the Thessalonians. They were worshiping pagan deities, then they wholeheartedly devoted themselves to Christ, even in the midst of significant persecution. If you weren't here for that, go back and listen to our earlier sermons in chapter 1. But this leads us to the second issue, the issue of reception. So assuming that the word that Paul preached to the Thessalonians was actually the word of God, there is still no guarantee that those who heard the word would receive the word for what it really is. As someone who spends the vast majority of his time on this earth trying to give God's word to people, I can tell you from firsthand experience that it is most often rejected. I say, hey, you know, I know you're going through some stuff in your marriage. Here's, here's what God has to say about it. And the vast majority of the time, people don't receive it. They think, oh, that's just your opinion. That's just your religious perspective, that's not from God. So what is the difference between, well, for example, you here this morning, everyone who professes to be a Christian, who claims to have received God's word and been changed by God's word, what's the difference between you and those who have heard it and rejected it? Friends, the answer is the work of the Spirit. You see, the only way that a believer can actually receive God's word as God's word, is if God's spirit is living in them. This is talked about in a number of different ways by theologians and in the Bible. We can talk about conversion, regeneration. We can talk about the new birth. This is pictured in the Bible with like scales coming off of your eyes, that kind of thing. You see it most often when you're reading throughout the Gospels. Everywhere that Jesus goes, he's always talking about people who have eyes but can't see. He's talking about people who have ears but can't hear. Jesus goes out and he preaches. And the vast majority of the people who hear his words, they can comprehend what he's saying. They speak the same language. They exist in the same culture. Jesus uses parables to make the content of his teaching more understandable, more easy to grasp. Nevertheless, people hear him and reject him. Why? 
because they hadn't been converted by the Spirit of God. Friends, when we are dead in our sin, we are unable to receive God's Word. God needs to quicken our hearts so that we can receive it. The vast majority of people have all the right machinery in place. You know, they're like the Frankenstein monster without the quickening agent of the lightning in order to animate to life. We would do well to remember that Jesus did not merely come preaching the word. Jesus was the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word dwelt among us. God's word actually came down to us in the person of Jesus. God's word manifested to the world, and the world rejected it. There are a hundred examples of this in the Gospels. Let me just give you one from the book of Matthew. This is from Matthew chapter 12. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that's to Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, that is Satan, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. You see, some of those who encountered Jesus, they did receive him as the word, the final word. But others rejected Jesus so much so that they even said, this man isn't from God. The work that he's doing isn't from God, it's from Satan. And if you want a a theological explanation as to why that is, Jesus, he explains it to us. John chapter 10, verses 25 through 29. Listen to how he starts this off. I told you, and you do not believe. Right? That's the same language as 1 Thessalonians, right? Paul says, I told you, and you believed. Right? But Jesus now is talking about those who don't believe. So he says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Works like casting out demons. But you do not believe Because you are not of my sheep. Do you notice the difference there? Do you notice the order of operations? Jesus does not say, you can't be my sheep because you don't believe me. That's not what he says. Jesus says, you don't believe me because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. They follow me. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So according to Jesus and his logic, only those who the Father has given to them, to him, only those who belong to him, in eternity's past, can hear his word when it comes to them. We tend to think that those who receive the word become sheep. And that's kind of true in a very limited, finite way from the perspective of like a human being. That kind of makes sense. We we can't peek behind the curtains. We don't know what's going on in somebody's heart, you know? I'm talking to somebody at my jujitsu gym and I share the gospel with them and they receive it. And it seems like, oh, they weren't a sheep. I gave them the word. They received it. They became a sheep. And there's a sense in which that's true. But what Jesus does for us in John chapter 10 is he peels back the curtain. He says, actually, from the divine perspective, it's it's the opposite. That person that received the word from you, they belong to me before the foundation of the world. And it's only because my spirit living in them 
was working in their heart that they were able to receive that word that you shared with them. This is, of course, the main point of Jesus' parable of the sower, right? The evangelist goes out with a seed and he scatters it. And the four different kinds of soil represent four different kinds of human hearts. Three of them don't receive the word. One of them does. What's the difference? The difference is that one of them has a good heart, which has been made new by God, which is capable of receiving the word. How can we receive God's word? Well, friends, we're going to talk a little bit more about practically how we can handle that from our side of things. But theologically, what you need to know is that God is the one who determines who receives his word. He prepares that work. Unless you think that this is something that should prevent you from evangelizing, you cannot be more wrong. This is the thing that should give you supreme confidence in evangelism. When we were loading up to go on a plane and move down to South America, America to take the gospel to people who had never heard the name of Jesus, my supreme confidence was that there were sheep down there that God had given to the Son, God the Father had given to God the Son in eternity's past, and that He was going to work and prepare their hearts to receive the word that I was going to come and deliver to them. That was my only hope as a missionary. And it should be your only hope as you pray and evangelize for those in your life. Point number three, the fruit of God's word. This third point flows out of the last little clause in this verse. Go, go there. He says, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as, it, uh, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, the Greek word translated as at work here in your English Bibles is the word energeo. That's the word from which we get our English word energy or energize, right? So if you think about uh, why they decided to call the energizer battery the energizer battery, you think about it, you have a toy, it's there, it's inanimate, it's lifeless, it has no force, it has no ability to work. You take this little cell which is full of life, electricity, you put it in the toy. The toy is energized. It's able to work. Paul is saying that not only did these Thessalonians receive the word, but also that they were empowered by it, that they were activated, that they were energized, they were strengthened, they were set in motion. God's word was not a benign agent in their life. It was active, alive. In what way? In a thousand different ways. We already talked about it. That's what kind of all of chapter one was about, right? They received the word even in the midst of much persecution. They could have turned back, but they didn't because God's word, empowered by God's spirit, was moving them on. This morning, what I want us to just pause and consider from, from what Paul is saying here is the reality that God's word is not mere information, right? Here are my words on this paper, right? It's an assortment of characters that, because we all speak the same language, all recognize to communicate a particular kind of information. Nevertheless, these words are not alive. That is in stark contrast to God's word, which is absolutely alive. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active. 
So it's not even alive like something that just kind of sits there like a blob, like, you know, the stuff that grows on trees. What's that called, Spencer? No, there's a fancier word I was looking for. There it is, like them. Yeah, I should not have stopped the sermon for that. (laughs) It's not just alive in some kind of benign way like some living things. It's alive and active. It's moving. It's strengthening us. God's word has agency. You know that when you read the Bible, when you get to the first page, God speaks and the universe comes to existence. You get to the New Testament where God is recreating the world that's been damaged by sin. A man is dead, God speaks, he comes back to life. Wherever God's word goes, inanimate things are animated by the life of God. The word of God is full of the life of God. You know, we so often talk about the Holy Spirit as a person, and he is. One of the great errors that people have in their minds when they think about the Holy Spirit is they think about him as if he is a force, right? Well, the same thing can be true of the Word. We think about the Word as if it's just kind of some benign thing. But remember, the Word came to us as a person, as the Son, in the beginning. When God created the universe by the power of his Word, that same Word, that was the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. It has life. He has life. Let me say it one more time. Let me say it one more way. The Word of God is not only alive, but it is also the agent in person by which God imparts life. So listen to Isaiah 55, chapters 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to be empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So when God desires to give life to something, that's the language of Isaiah 55, right? I will accomplish that which I desire. When, When God desires to give life to something, he sends his word out. This is why the psalmist, when he is so low that he feels like he is on the verge of death, he prays like this. My soul clings to the dust, right? That language clings to the dust. He's saying like, I'm so low to the earth that I just want to just revert back to the state from which God created me. I'm just, I'm, I'm clinging to the dust. And then he goes on to say, give me life according to your word. So the Thessalonians not only heard the word, but they received the word, and they were made alive by the word. Point number four, application. Subpoints here. Subpoint number one, prioritize God's word. If what I'm saying to you is true, then you need to prioritize God's word in your life, individually and corporately. So let's just just run through some examples. Think about your evangelism. I have been through a number of different evangelism classes. I've read evangelism books. I've been invited to evangelism seminars and training and conferences. And friends, let me tell you, a lot of it is very bad. A lot of it's good, 
Some of it is people thinking that they're creative and they're not. They're just finding new ways to get people excited about evangelism. And anything that you do that gets people excited about evangelism, however you repackage it, it's probably good depending on how you do it. But people get excited, they start doing it more and they start to see fruit and people go, oh, there's fruit, so what we're doing must be good. But let me tell you, the vast majority of bad evangelism training that I see, advice on evangelism, theology of evangelism, the thing that's bad about it is that it makes God's word secondary. It's all about trying to convince people with their own reason and logic and clever metaphors and illustrations and sometimes even psychological sales tactics. Put your right hand on their shoulder with a firm grip. Look them in their eyes. Use their name repeatedly. You know, like you bought a bad business book. This is real. Good evangelism says, okay, we're going to do everything in our power to not make this harder than it has to be, but no matter what, God's word is going to be the main thing that we trust in to bring about the salvation of those that we're trying to reach. It doesn't matter if you plant a community garden, if you have a homeless uh, kitchen for homeless people, if you're putting on an art exhibit and you think the the painting powerfully portrays some aspect of the Christian worldview. Friends, if you don't do that stuff and have God's word somehow, some way come out and take center stage, your evangelism is going to be impotent. Another example, church gatherings. What I tell members in our church who are shy and reticent to share the gospel, not because they're afraid, fear of man or anything like that, but just because they're just not, you know, they're just, you know, a leaf blows and they go, ugh. The idea of ever, you know, sitting down and saying like, hey, you're a sinner and you're going to go to hell without Jesus. I can never do that. I tell them, okay, but can you at least invite people to church? And the reason why I say that is because I understand that God's word is going to be center stage in this church. People are going to hear God's word through and through when they're here. We're going to sing God's word, even if it's in an old-timey hymn that really your grandma likes more than you do. We're going to sing God's word. We're going to pray God's word. Were you guys paying attention to Mike Cantrell and, and uh, Michael Waugh's prayers this morning? Were you praying along with them? Just saturated with scripture. We're going to have people come up and read God's word. When I come up here, I'm going to try to keep Sean to a minimum and I'm going to try to hold God's word up and let it do the majority of the work. If we really believe what we say we believe about the preaching of God's word, then our church service should reflect that. Our family worship should reflect that. You know, listen, all kids are at different stages, and with our kids, we've used, like, the ology book, and we've used the Jesus Storybook Bible, but, like, as soon as possible, we try to transition to to actually giving them God's Word, and we do age-appropriate lessons, and sometimes do we forget and do we stop doing devotionals? Yes, but then Amber gets on to me, and then we get right back at it, okay? But we try to, even in our own family worship, make God's Word be the thing that takes center stage because we think it's the only thing that can give life to our children. In our own spiritual development. Listen, I I recommended two books to you from the bookstall. Reaching for the props. I recommended these to you. I I very much love and care about our bookstall. I give books away every Wednesday. But man, reading Christian books should not be the primary thing that you use for your spiritual edification. Charles Spurgeon says, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. That's the reason why on a Wednesday night, I spend like five minutes reading out of a good book that I hope somebody else wants to read after they hear me reading it. And then I close that book, put it away, and then we spend an hour staring at the whiteboard, which has scripture on it. 
that's a pretty good proportion, I think. Think about even in your own relationships, if you believe this to be true. If you're in a marriage that's struggling, where are you looking for help? Are you looking primarily in God's word for answers to what, to what ails your marriage? Or did, did your, your friend at your pottery class recommend some new book from the Oprah Book Club that you really think would be more helpful? What about on your job? What about trying to raise your children? I'm not saying that there's not an abundance of grace in this world where God makes, you know, really helpful things that come outside of the church. Yes, of course. Read those books. Use those resources. I'm asking, what is your main point of emphasis? What's the main thing that you're trusting in? What is the bedrock of the thing that you're looking for to help you have more healthy relationships? Sub point number two for point number four. Receive God's word with vigor. If what we're saying is true, receive God's word with vigor. I don't know how often you read your Bible or when you do it, but let me tell you, one of the reasons when I was a young Christian why I stopped reading the Bible first thing when I got up in the morning is because I was dead, and I would, just, I would just, you know, just finger scanning across the page, and I would go, okay, I read a chapter, I'm good, and I didn't learn anything, you know? If God's word really is the thing that can animate your life, when you read God's word, try to do it in such a way that you can actually comprehend. You know, get a piece of paper, get a pen, get a highlighter, maybe have a commentary there with you. When you're here on a Sunday morning or on a a Wednesday night, be here. Be present. Be active. Be an active listener. You should be straining to listen to God's word as much as I strain for 30 hours a week in preparing God's word for you. I'm going to use Melissa Small as an example real quick and embarrass her. Every time I see her, she's got like 14 notebooks and like four highlighter things. And when I'm teaching, she's never looking at me because she's always scribbling and taking notes. And, you know, I don't know how much that's working out in her own personal life. And I understand, actually, I'm not much of a note taker. So, but... I mean, listen, whether you, show, whether you pay attention and you, you, you really glean something from the text by taking notes and using different color highlighters, or just by not going to sleep or looking at your phone, the point is the same. Be here, be attentive, strive to receive from God and his word. And if you do stuff on a Saturday night that has you all messed up on a Sunday morning, maybe cut those things out. Staying up late playing video games or watching a scary movie or... I don't know, having your weekly fight with your spouse, you know. At least if you're going to do that on a Saturday, try to resolve it and be ready to come and and receive from God on Sunday morning. Subpoint number three, champion the preaching of God's word. Uh, Much to the surprise of even many modern Christians, The preaching of the word is still the primary means by which God gives life to his people. So my application for you is simple. Don't abandon the wisdom of God, which we have so clearly seen from Scripture this morning, and replace it with the wisdom of this world that tries to tell you that preaching is outmoded, it's outdated, we don't need it anymore, it comes from the you know, it grew out of modernism, even though, like, people were preaching the, the gospel, like, 
you know, 1,800 years before modernism even began as a period in history, right? They're always trying to tell you we need something new. We need to replace preaching with plays and dramatic dance and evangelistic and immersive art experiences and small group discussions and and more of a dialogue, less preaching from the front, more of a dialogue from the front. Uh, Downstairs in our creepy basement, we have a, 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 a black table, it's kind of, you know, like waist height, and uh, I don't know where that came from, I think it came from Ken, is that right, Grant, do you know, did that come from Ken, that black table? No, you don't know? <laughs> Who knows where it came from? Uh, but it is literally the perfect lectern for, like, modern cool preaching, Right? Like, you know, get this thing out of here. Put the little black table there. You can put your iPad and your coffee, which, of course, is like some brand that we've never heard of, but it's definitely better than all the other brands. And you can put that on that little table, and you don't have to stand behind it. Of course, you can stand off to the side of it and be more casual as you approach and have a conversational tone as you preach God's Word. Well, that table is still down there in the basement. And instead, we have this big old ugly No, it's not ugly. We have this big old pulpit up here. Why? Because I don't want anything that I do on a Sunday morning, including the items that are up on the stage, I don't want anything to communicate to you the idea that I am here to have a conversation with you. I don't want anything to communicate to you the idea that I'm here for a dialogue. Friends, I am a preacher of God's word. I'm a pastor. This is my main responsibility. I'm not here to dialogue with you. We can dialogue after service. We can dialogue any time of the week. What I'm called to do on a Sunday morning is to open up this Bible and to preach to you. I'm called to proclaim the excellencies and the glories of Christ and the gospel to you. That is what God says he uses to draw dead men to himself and give them life. That's what God says he uses to build up his church. That's what he gifts people to do. So I don't care what the world says. As long as I'm a pastor in this church, there's going to be a faithful, qualified man standing behind a pulpit, hanging on to it for dear life, and preaching the gospel, full-throated, heart full of joy, logic on fire, preaching the gospel of God. And if the day ever comes where somebody tries to stop doing that in this church, you need to go find a different church. I've been a pastor here now for three and a half years. When I first got here, uh, most of us know that this church wasn't doing well. Uh, I was a young pastor, still am. And I was kind of an idiot, still am. And uh, things looked real bad. So bad that like, people who knew me and loved me were like, don't do it. Don't go. But I came. And do you know what my big game plan was when I came to this church? I mean, you could take seminary classes on like, you know, 17 steps to bring a church back to life. You know what my big game plan was? I'm going to come up into this pulpit every Sunday and I'm going to open up this word and I'm going to preach the gospel. That was it. Even if everything else in the church fell apart. And friends, sometimes other things in the church fell apart. Have you noticed that like we still don't have like bathrooms? Yeah. Right? Have you noticed that like if you're a member of this church, sometimes the budget doesn't get presented? <laughs> right? Like things have fallen apart. But that's because my only hope for this church was to come and to preach the word to you and hope and pray 
pray, earnestly pray, I was driven to prayer that you would actually receive my preaching as God's word and that you would be changed by it. And friends, look what God has done. Look what God has done in this church. No programs, not a lot of money, not a lot of hired staff, just the faithful ministry of the word. And look what he's done. Look at how God has changed not just us, but you. Think about in your own life what has brought about the most significant spiritual change for you. Yeah, sometimes it's books. Sometimes it's a relationship. When I think about my own life, the most significant change has always come as the byproduct of me sitting under the faithful preaching of God's word. Let me also add, brothers and sisters, that my only hope for the continuing health of this church is that the Spirit of God will continue to work through the Word of God and the preaching ministry of this church to sustain us. Now, I have a whole other page here that I'm just going to cut out because I want to cut it out. But let me, let me tell you, uh, we would be remiss to not mention the content of the gospel that Paul was preaching. If you remember all the way back in Acts 17 when we saw what Paul was preaching, right? It says that he went into the synagogue right on three consecutive Sabbath days and he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. You see, Paul wasn't just going in there communicating the idea of philosophers the thoughts of intellectuals of his day. No, he was communicating the gospel. And friends, all of our preaching is in vain if we're up here just giving out good old-fashioned moralism. You know what I'm talking about. You've been to the churches. You go in there and you get a lesson on how to just be nice to your neighbors, on how to get along in the workplace, on how to stop sinning sexually or any number of different things. And you've been in these sermons that are completely devoid of Christ and the gospel. They're synagogue sermons. They're sermons that you could preach in a Jewish house of worship and there's so little of Christ in them that no Jews would even flinch. They'd be perfectly content to let you sit there and rattle off just general, generic, biblical wisdom. Friends, that is not what we preach. That's not the gospel that Paul preached. Paul preached the gospel of Christ and Christ crucified. He came to tell us what God wants us to know, namely that we're sinners, that we're in need of a Savior, that God loved us despite our sin. He didn't leave us in our sin. Instead, he came down to us in the person of his Son. The Word came and dwelt among us. And then he gave his life up for us. And now the Word that we proclaim to you is that all those who trust in that great sacrifice can be saved. They can receive life. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that you would receive it this morning. And if you have any questions about that, please come talk to me after the service or really anyone in the pews around you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this morning we've been built up. We've been strengthened. We've been energized. We've been encouraged. So would you, God, send us back out into the world, 
revitalized, ready to carry out the mission that you've called us to. Help us to avoid mission drift and mission fatigue. Help us to remember and to be motivated by your glory. In your son's name we pray, amen.